This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. Riva, today's guest on the show is Andy Imhoff of the Pardon My Fork podcast. I know. Did you know he and his wife competed in a cooking competition? Sure. Maybe the Sherpa will learn a thing or two about cooking after this episode. Then maybe he won't refer to himself as the king of spaghettios. Or the prince of hot pockets. Attention rebels of the Sherpolution. Today's podcast is being brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash Sherpa. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And now Mr. Bruce will lead you into the Sherpa Chalet. As a reminder, please don't disturb the yak. Welcome to Too Many Podcasts, the podcast about podcasts. Now, podcasting from the Sherpa Chalet on Mount Podcastia, he's your host, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Hey there, Rebels, and welcome to Too Many Podcasts. It's me, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Are you hungry? I know that sounds like a weird question to hear on a podcast, but are you? Because I can tell you, if you're not hungry now, you will probably be hungry by the end of this interview. <laughs> it's the weird effect that you get when talking to my guest. Who's our guest today, Sherpa? His name is Andy Imhoff. He is the host of Pardon My Fork that he hosts with his wife. And they talk about, well, of course, food stuff and food sport and all sorts of cooking stuff. And I made it a point to have a good meal before I actually spoke to Andy. And I was still hungry by the end of the interview. Not fair, Andy. Not fair. But anyway, I really enjoyed it. And he gave some interesting pointers. And he talked about eating some interesting food and doing some interesting things with food. Careful. Get that mind out of the gutter. Stop that. You. I, I see you over there. Yeah, you with the hat. Knock that off. Oh. So anyway, let's get back to this. <laughs> and we will... Take a listen to my conversation with Andy Imhoff of Pardon My Fork. Hello, Rebels. We are in the kitchen at the Sherpa Chalet. And my guest today is a guy who hosts a podcast with his co-host and his co-host in life, his wife, Corianne. His name is Andy Imhoff. name of the podcast is called Pardon My Fork. Yes, sir. Hey, you just talked about being in the kitchen, the Sherpa kitchen. I actually took the advice of one of the positive reviews of your podcast. Really? Yeah. Do you know what that is? No, hit me. Yeah. This, I mean, I'm not making this up. If you look through your reviews, I know we don't usually like to do that, but if ever you get curious, I just saw someone say, don't listen to this podcast on an empty stomach because you're going to be hungry by the time that you're done. <laughs> yeah, that is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is the truth. And tonight, my my wife and I went out went out for a belated birthday dinner for her, and we even stopped and got some pastry. So I'm good. I'm full. I'm ready to rock and roll, my friend. Awesome. We can do it right this time. You don't have a, a beverage with you, do you, Jim? Uh, unfortunately, I do not. 
Oh, man. See, I've got a couple of things that I'm going to be sipping on while we talk. A couple of things that are local, actually, to me here in Oregon. I have a rogue Rolling Thunder stouted whiskey, and I'm going to be chasing it with a little bit, bit of a Barsidious. Gosh, I forget which beer this is now. I, I buy them a keg at a time. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the uh, cherry chalk tabulous from them. We more concerned with like with drinks. Did you know more about alcohol and beverages before f- food, or did, did the cooking element come first? The cooking element came first. We always had a little bit of the drink element. That's mostly because my first show was actually called Boost Booze and Barbecue, and it was a variety show. We enjoyed doing that show. But as happens in life, you know, my co-host moved to a different town, got a house, got pregnant, like the whole thing. And so things were not going to work out anymore. And so I put a hiatus on that show. It's actually back now, but we had such a long hiatus that it's been kind of a slow go trying to pick things back up. But, you know, the, the booze portion had really come in at the same time as the food with that. It focused mostly, or excuse me, focuses mostly on automotive talk. And then the fair portion of, of the booze and the barbecue. Pardon my fork has really just encompassed the food part. And here in the last three months, you know, with the whole COVID thing, we started doing some like virtual tastings. And it's amazing to me how many people have gotten on board. Seriously, we, we get sent stuff all the time to taste and drink. We have tons of people who tune in locally. We, your listeners, if they're not familiar with Oregon, this won't really mean a whole lot to them, but we are the most watched and listened to food-related podcasts in the Mid-Willamette Valley. Congratulations. Thank you, my friend. It's it's a bit of an accomplishment. It's not like we're the biggest in Oregon or something like that. But, you know, as far as our specific niche, we go out to about 16,000 people a month, and I'm very proud of that. How did you first get involved in the beginning with food and restaurants and drink? And what were your earliest? Well, so I actually grew up in a restaurant. I started in my parents' restaurant when I was 12, and it was just a pizza joint. But I learned all the basics. I learned how to you know, work a knife and roll dough and you know what cooking temperatures are and what flavors I liked and flavors I didn't like. Got me out of the yummy phase. The yummy phase is what we call people who eat breakfast cereal for dinner because they just say, man, this is what tastes good. You know, we go to a restaurant with them and they look around, they just go, man, I'll just have a dry burger. Bring me some ketchup on the side. You know, those people, they're still in the yummy phase. They haven't developed their palate, really. They haven't gotten out of their their comfort zone of food, if you know what I mean, Jim. Mm -hmm. I kind of broke out of that early on, I guess is what I'm saying. And uh, when I met my wife, we were 18 and 19. So I've known her for a long time. She's always had a really, really eclectic palate. She is one of those people that has an eidetic memory. She's got like 143 IQ. She's a doctor, but she remembers everything she smells. And that really lends itself, by the way, to when you're tasting food, because the majority of your sense of taste comes through smell. Most people already know that, but what they don't know is that your, your limbic system is the most closely tied to your memories. So in any given person, their strongest uh, sense tied to their memories, it's not sight, it's not sound, it's smell. And taste will go along with that as well, but for the most part, it's smell. And so that's what made it such a, such a knockout, you know, when I was able to bring her along. And I'll be honest, I mean, she wasn't really into the whole podcast thing. 
still probably isn't all that much into it, but at least she has a good time tasting all of these amazing wine, spirits, beer, and the foods that people will bring over or, you know, let us try the products we get to try, stuff like that. I think she has a really good time doing that. That's what keeps her going, I have no doubt. <laughs> you know, I could see what you mean with you talk about how the importance of a sense of smell. They've, I've heard that said that if a person is selling a house, they said that they should bake an apple pie when people come mm -hmm. to see the house. Because when people walk in, they said they recognize that smell and it kind of takes them back like if they were a kid or something like that. So that has upsides and downsides. The downside to that right now, and it's so funny you bring that up because I actually produce a real estate podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I have a realtor that comes and uses my studio and I, I produce for her. I've asked her that question. Like when we go to sell our house, shouldn't we like bake cookies or something? And she said, actually, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> and the reasons, because this is in Oregon. I don't know how things are in Long Island, but in Oregon, it is such a seller's market. There are so few homes on that they are just flying out the door. And so if a person walks in, they're not viewing 10 homes that day. That This could be the only home that they're viewing. And so when they come in and it has a strong smell, right now, apparently the first thought for just about anyone coming into a house, and I have to admit that I'm the same way now, if it strongly smells like something nice, you have to wonder what they're covering up. Hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. I never considered that. It sounds fantastically cynical. I understand that. <laughs> but apparently we're just in a market now where that's something that people need to be aware of. Hmm, I like that. Your podcast, I think even in your description of your show itself, uses a word that I've actually never heard of until when I checked out your podcast, the word food sport. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a real thing for sure, buddy. Matter of fact, uh, how we got started in this whole thing. Let's see here. I think it was the very first episode of Pardon My Fork that we ever did. We had gotten a local food sport competitor who had won the... Oh, gosh, I'm going to screw it up. Uh, ooh, I'm so sorry. It's Kim Bannock. So you can go out and look it up. I think it was in 2016. She was the world seafood champion. And we brought her in. We had her on the show. She and my wife, they instantly bonded. Her and her husband, we instantly bonded. We're, we're very close friends with them now. Very good people. And, you know, we did that whole interview. We had a great time with them. It was maybe four days later, Jim, the World Food Championships people reached out and said, hey, your show has been making the rounds in our office. We would love to have you come out and do media. And so I showed my wife the email and I was like, what do you want to do? And she said, hey, I want to take a vacation. Let's do it. So we flew out there. They gave us all access as far as media was concerned. And we had a fantastic time doing the media. Now, the, the flip side of that is about two weeks before the competition, we got reached out to by another media person that was going to be there. And they said, hey, I know a chef that's going to be there. They lost their sous chef. Do you think you and your wife would be able to do it? It's just going to be the one round. It's not going to be a big deal. And uh, we said, yeah, you know, not a problem. Because they didn't know at the time, you know, that I had grown up in a restaurant. And then my wife and I, of course, were doing barbecue competitions and stuff here in Oregon. No realization of that. We didn't bring it up because, I mean... I don't know. I, I didn't feel the need to bring it up in that moment. And so they just kind of went into it blind asking us, hey, could you do this? And we said yes. And we had a conversation with this young lady on the phone. Her name's Suzanne Duplantis. She competed in the burger category. And she was very nice. Let us know, you know, I'm not expecting anything huge. So don't stress about it. You know, we spend a couple of weeks practicing. We get to the WFC. 
it's it's the meet and greet. We finally meet her. She's like, you guys, thank you so much for helping me out. But truly, honestly, we're, I'm not worried about it. You know, this is just kind of my entrance back into food sport. So we just get what we get. There's 60 other competitors in burger. So I'm not worried about it. Well, of course, it's 30 minutes into the first round and everything is done. And she kind of has a moment where she looks around. And she goes, holy crap, these people know how to cook. And uh, ended up going into the top 10 in fourth place. Um, unfortunately, didn't make it past the 10th place once in the top 10 because an ingredient was forgotten. And there's debate on whose fault that was. I, I think she has to take credit for that one because she is the head chef. <laughs> you know, she got 10th, hey, it's a couple thousand bucks. Nobody's going to turn that down, right? And so that was our first entrance into the World Food Championships. And then it really, really opened some doors for us as far as the show is concerned. We gained quite a following through that crowd. We've really tried to focus more on being local recently, though. Uh, I think we've lost some followers and, and listeners because of that, especially now during the whole COVID thing. I, I feel very, I shouldn't say responsible. I don't want to sound like one of those douchehead celebrities where they're like, I'm giving a voice to the voiceless. That's not what I mean. All I mean is I do have some people who listen to me. And if we can promote locality more than a national brand, I would prefer to do that. I would prefer to help my local uh, uh, businesses. You know what I mean? Sure. It's fairness. And then, you know, you know what's around you too. And I'm sure you probably check out the restaurants and their meals and you know what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And you're giving a voice to that as well. So, and you never know if those chains or, you know, small mom and pop restaurants could grow as well. Yeah, exactly. It's just important to me to help my own community. That's always been a big one for both my wife and I, you know, I mean, obviously she's in the, the healthcare profession, it's just something that's always had strong roots for us. So anyway, it's kind of a weird tangent for the whole story of how we got started. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know, along the lines of that, Jim. So we we still talk to restaurateurs, chefs, food, world food champions. Like we still do all of that. But we have a weekly live tasting show now that we do. We call it Small Batch Edition of Pardon My Fork. And every week we have new... Uh, spirit or wine or beer. We kind of alternate as a matter of fact, like one week will be local, one week will be something import. And we really try to follow that theme. We do have an in-house sommelier. It's a friend of mine named Chris Lopez. He's a som for uh, one of the larger wineries here in Oregon. And he joins us remotely every week. He comes up with cocktail recipes for us. He educates us about the wine. He educates us about the beer. He gives us his tasting notes, which are of course very effective for us. Any chance we get, we'll have the beer maker or the distiller or winemaker on to talk about their product. And uh, sometimes we'll even split the show in half. We'll have the front end of the show where we do our, our tasting and talk, and then we'll have a guest on the back end. You guys are going to be hearing this quite a while after we record, but by that point, you'll see what I'm talking about. We're going to have quite a backlog. <laughs> I guess with everything that's going on in this world, we are recording this, unfortunately, during the COVID pandemic, for those of you who are listening in 2025, <laughs> and, and you're checking out my back catalog. You got to listen to all of them, man. <laughs> That's right. In sequence. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, Welcome to episode 1257 of the podcast, Sherpa. <laughs> Do you think with all of this that's going on where people are probably staying home a little bit more that they are reconnecting to cooking in the kitchen? Yeah, I don't see how you couldn't. I mean, all of the services 
what's the ones? Um, HelloFresh and oh gosh, I forget the names of the other ones, but the boxes where you can order up the meals, right? Mm-hmm. They've all skyrocketed. They're they're all like beyond busy. Uh, CSAs, which are community sourced agriculture, those are all just going through the roof. We had signed up for Imperfect Foods when COVID hit. We actually went, I think, two weeks without an Imperfect Foods order. And of course, they apologized profusely. They were like, we just went up 3,000% in interest. I- I'm sorry, but like people just are buying stuff out before we can even uh, get it on the website. So it, I think a lot of people have reverted back in. And frankly, that might be one of the best things to come out of this. Now, the downside is that there are a lot of restaurants especially in Oregon, by the way, we have not had good provisions to help small businesses. Uh, not at all. And, and it has been devastating. I, I honestly don't know how our Oregon economy is going to recover from this in any kind of a short term because hundreds of businesses have closed. And a lot of those restaurants and eateries and, and food-related services. You consider yourself a foodie and you, your wife considers herself a foodie. Most definitely. Is it like a level where you should kind of understand certain things about eating and the eating experience to to consider yourself a foodie? Not just like, well, I like ice cream, so I'm a foodie. No, you're not. <laughs> I guess you call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. You know, it depends on what you what you like. If a person says, I like ice cream and I want to try every single ice cream in the world. Yeah, you're some kind of a foodie. It's sort of like having a podcast. You have a niche that's you know, true. You, you eat hamburgers and French fries every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. However, you've got eight different kinds of ice cream in your fridge, and and you enjoy experiencing the different ones. I guess I guess it does kind of come down to the experience. I mean, if a person's on the fence about whether or not to call themselves foodie, uh, just think about whether or not you go into a restaurant or you look at recipes and you say, "Hey, that's something new I want to try," and you kind of explore with flavors and. Uh, you, you're adventurous mm-hmm. with your food choices. You know what I mean? Would you say that there's anything that you would never eat or you you really just keep an open mind towards whatever can get served? Oh, there's definitely stuff I'll never eat. Eyeballs, not a fan. Uh, there's something called balut. It is the fertilized and mostly grown egg from a duck. You crack it open, it's got a little duck inside. I'm not huge on escargot, not a huge fan. Strangely, I actually have a pretty severe allergy to uh, cow dairy, so that's off the menu. It, actually, I've had a few people tell me, hey, if you can't have cow dairy, then you're not a foodie. And it's like, well, hey, that's, there's a lot of other foods out there besides <laughs> cheese and yogurt. Like, calm down. <laughs> like meat and vegetables, remember those? <laughs> yeah, and dairy from all kinds of other stuff, too. Hell, we get cheese from yaks. Uh, it's not a problem. I can yeah. still eat cheese. It's okay. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've got uh, two two dairy goats here at my house. Uh, they're my wife's technically, but they're so sweet. They're kind of like dogs, and they just want to be like petted and touched all the time. And uh, we get I don't know quarter day, yeah, quarter day, maybe a little less, but something close to that. So you can pretty comfortably say a gallon and a half a week. So I've got goat mozzarella, goat ricotta, and chevra in the fridge right now. That's right. I remember you mentioning that you had farm animals at your home and you also raised chickens and ducks. Yep. Chickens and ducks. I love ducks. I, there's just a thing about them. I guess I, I love watching them land in the water when they fly. They look so graceful and they're just kind of quiet and they're just a little quiet quackers. And there's always just kind of something about them that, that appealed to me. 
what kind of animals are ducks to raise? I, I was always curious about that. Um, they're neurotic. <laughs> they're they're the the craziest. They're like, oh no, this monster that's been feeding and housing me and changing my water for weeks, months, years is coming in to give me more food. I better run away. <laughs> that's what ducks are. They are neurotic. They are just insane. Uh, as a matter of fact, we just rescued two ducks. It was a friend of a friend. This woman had bought two ducks because she watched a BuzzFeed video where this person had a pet duck. And she's like, ah, I want a pet duck now. But I don't want it to be lonely because I'm not going to be able to spend all my time around it. So I'm going to get another one. Here's the thing. If you've got two parrots, you don't have a parrot that's fun and talks back to you. You just have two birds in an existential crisis. So when you have two, two birds, they just see each other and know what they are. And then they just freak out. Our ducks, if uh, one of them gets injured or something, we have to bring them in and put them in like an isolation area, you know, for, I don't know, we had a duck where we had to keep it in isolation for a month because it had a broken wing. That duck got docile and wanted to sit on your lap. The second it went out with the other ducks, nope, don't touch me. Don't even come close to me. So there's, there's your, your pro tip for the whole episode. If you do want a pet duck or a pet chicken or anything else, only have one because the second you get two, it's going to be like, oh, that's what I look like. And you're out of the picture. <laughs> okay, we'll go back to food then. So it's a little bit safer. So we don't have to worry about neurotic <laughs> ducks. <laughs> so what kind of foods are, would you say that you're the most passionate about? Cooking out of the garden, cooking things that we grow and raise ourselves. That is huge for me. Whenever we are able to have a meal where absolutely everything on the table was grown, uh, fed, sourced right where we're at, those are the most important ones for me. I love I love breakfast like that, where the night before we gotten some potatoes out of the garden, we grabbed some fresh laid duck eggs. Okay, the, the bacon doesn't really count because, uh, you know, I didn't raise it, but someone else I knew raised it. And then I cured it and smoked it myself. You know, it, stuff like that. Those are the most satisfying uh, times for me, most satisfying meals for me. And, and that's when I'm the most passionate about what I'm doing. But honestly... When, when you're talking about being passionate about something, I really enjoy learning new things and having new experiences. So that's one of the things that I've always tried to focus in on is whenever I have a brand on our show, I try to have the people representing that brand on to talk about it. This is going way, way back, but we had uh, Papo Joe's. It's P-A-P-O. Or sorry, not Joe's, J's. Uh, it's literally just J apostrophe S, Papo J's. They make this stuff, they call it coconut vodka, but it's actually called uh, lambanog. It's, it's made out of coconut nectar. So it actually comes out of the flower. It's not water. It's not the coconut fruit. It, it's actually made and distilled from this coconut nectar. They use natural yeast that's in the air. It reaches 15% alcohol with, I think he said two or three days. And then you distill that into a 40% alcohol, bottle it, and it is really, really interesting. Not everybody's going to love it. Matter of fact, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's better than like a 20-year-old whiskey, but it was fascinating. For a $30 or $28 bottle of booze, like it was a really, really fascinating thing to drink, make some cocktails out of. Our, our son Chris made some really incredible cocktails that just absolutely blew my socks off. It's stuff like that that I really, really enjoy and love to be passionate about because it's just something that I don't you know, a lot of times we'll intentionally not try something 
Like I, I won't open wines until it comes to showtime. We had a winemaker on the show here uh, a couple of months ago where they gave us a Cabernet Sauvignon. And it was grapes from one and a half acres in the Applegate Valley of Oregon, which is known for having a lot of microclimates. I, I want to say it's like 27 different microclimates. Literally, there's a different climate for every acre. It's shocking. And so they took these grapes and, you know, it's an acre. So they got, I don't know, 600 pounds off of that acre, acre and a half. I think it made, what did they tell me? $200 or excuse me, 200 uh, bottles of wine. It was like 40 cases or something like that. And uh, well, that's, that's 450 bottles, but you know what I'm talking about, a super limited run. And it, of course, it didn't taste like any Cabernet I'd ever had. It tasted like blueberry juice. It was just shocking. And I really enjoy having experiences like that, especially on air, where I can just go, oh my gosh, this is not what I expected. It's totally different. Now we got to talk about it, right? When you were t- uh, telling the story, I was thinking about that old Orson Welles commercial with Paul Masson. Paul Masson will serve new wine before it's time. So you, <laughs> I want to drink new wine before showtime. <laughs> See, stuff like that always reminds me of that scene in The Jerk where he's like, I'm tired of this old wine. Can we get some fresh wine, please? <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, you told me that you were cooking an entire alligator. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. That was a good time. It, and it was totally random too. A uh, buddy of mine just, I don't know, he got his stimulus check or something. And he's like, <laughs> hey, dude, here's something I've always wanted to do as a whole alligator. And I love him to death, but he's not the most reliable person in the world. I'll just put it that way. And so I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Whatever. We'll just, yeah, sure. We'll do an alligator, buddy. No problem. He sends me a text and it's a receipt for the alligator showing a delivery date. And he's like, on the way, brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. Hey, honey, we've got plans this weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, it was good. And actually, I posted that day, uh, hey, we're getting an alligator apparently. So, be looking for that. And I don't know, four hours later, I got reached out to by this company called Billy Twang's Barbecue Rub. And they said, hey, just saw you're doing a whole alligator. We'd love to have you try our, our rubs on it. And we'll send you some extras to do a giveaway. And I was like, great, fantastic. I love that plan. So I ended up using their rubs on the gator and it was delicious. We gave away bottles. That was really cool. I tried to keep the giveaway very local because listen, sure, you can send them wherever you want in the country. But, you know, again, trying to build that local brand. It's, it's worked out and the gator was amazing. The only thing I would do is it was a big gator, right? Um, that tail was so thick and it, I have to admit, it did not cook all the way through the way I would have liked it to. And so next time around, I will be separating those muscle groups, just using a, a thin knife and separating those muscle groups away from the bone. And uh, I'll probably put some, I don't know, sausage or something in there, but I'll, I'll make big enough cuts in the sausage where it acts as like an air gap and we'll, we'll get some um, air flowing around it. So you can pretty much eat most of an alligator's body then from the, I guess, from the torso to the tail? Everything is edible? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. A farm-raised alligator is is going to be different from like a wild alligator. Wild alligator, it's not going to have a stitch of fat on it because it has to fight for survival all the time. A farm-raised alligator has quite a bit of fat on it. And that's another thing. I, I should have done a better job of trimming that fat. However, some of the fat is internal. So it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of got to know what you're looking at as you're taking the thing apart. Because I definitely had a couple of times where I got a... Ch- 
of fat and I didn't realize it. And I was like, ooh, that's wool. That texture is not quite right, you know, but that's okay. You just, you spit it out and you, you huck it. Uh, as a matter of fact, the chickens, the little raptors, they ate everything off of that spine. It, I don't know why it was probably the booze fo- flowing, but I was like, all right, <laughs> we got this, this alligator spine left and it's got all this meat on it. And so we hucked it into the chicken yard and they picked that thing clean. Honestly, Jim, I cannot wait for when we sell this house, somebody's going to be gardening in that backyard and they're <laughs> going to run across this four and a half foot long spine because <laughs> I don't know where it is. They buried it at this point. I have no clue where that spine is. Somebody's going to find it and have a full on freak out and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> so, so what does alligator taste like? Does it really taste like chicken or can we clear no, this up? No, it tastes like frog legs. Quite frankly, it, it tastes a lot like frog legs. It has the texture of chicken tenderloin. So I think that's where a lot of the taste like chicken comes from is the texture, but it, it doesn't have the flavor of chicken. It definitely has the flavor of an amphibian or a reptile. So it, it tastes, it tastes a lot like, uh, it's not as gamey as iguana, but it's, it's you know, kind of frog leggy. What's the most unusual thing that you've probably eaten? Rattlesnake. It was, it was good. I had no problem with it. Okay. Barbecue okay. rattlesnake is great. If, I've I'm, tried I'm, ostrich I'm, once. That, that was kind of, I thought it was a little chewy. A little too chewy for you? Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I'll tell you what we have in the freezer right now is uh, bison. We got ourselves a half bison. And man, I'm excited to cook that thing up. We've got two bison farms here in Oregon. And we were finally able to get our hands on one. And this is going to sound expensive. So we ended up paying about $7 a pound after the butcher and packaging and all of that, right? Seven bucks a pound, but when you look in the stores at just the ground bison, it'll be 10 or 11 bucks a pound, at least on the West Coast it is. All things considered, that didn't seem like too bad of a deal for me. We got the New York strips, we got the T-bone steaks, we got, matter of fact, they made me some ribeye tomahawks. Uh, I had just sort of like sent them a note going, hey, if you haven't butchered ours yet, if you thought you could make me a couple of tomahawks, I'd appreciate that. And so when I was loading up, I saw them and I was like, oh, yes, these things are, they're legit two feet long. They left the whole rib bone on. Oh, I'm excited about that. If they're any bigger, they'd like tip the car over like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to have to fire up the big grill just to cook them. Like they, they're big. See, now I'm getting hungry. But I see, I thought I was covered with all of this. See, now you're making my mouth water. Sorry, man. And people always ask me, like, how do you podcast about food? Well, when you have a passion for it and you can talk about it, this is, this is what happens because people have these questions. You know, you're asking me questions trying to get the flow of the conversation, not realizing that when you ask me these questions, I'm going to have a pretty good answer. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I'm in the mood for this now. I want some. <laughs> like I'll give you an example. A chef buddy of mine did an episode of Pardon My Fork here not too long ago. And it was, it was a small batch edition. So he came and tasted wine, but then he starts telling us about how he wants to make some popcorn after the show. And he's got this recipe. The recipe is very simple. You add about twice as much butter or oil as you normally would for popcorn. And you put a single layer of kernels in the bottom of your pan, right? You get that warming up. And as soon as you see the first pop, you add, and it depends on, on what size pot you're using, but you, you add a lot of sugar. Uh, I think he added three quarters of a cup or, or a full cup, something like that essentially making kettle corn, basically. And then he reaches up and pulls this Indian vindaloo spice off of our spice rack. He throws that in there, a little bit of salt, and then covers it and starts shaking it up. And it's popping away, you know. 
He's listening to it. Finally, no more pops. Turns the stove off, shakes it a little bit more, gives it some good shakes, you know, pulls that top off. He's just made Indian curry spiced kettle corn. And it was one of the best things I've ever had. It was shocking, shockingly good. We've made it several times since. And it is just like, it's a new staple in my house. My parents are very vanilla people. Chocolate is exotic for them. They're very vanilla people. I had a bag of that that I took over their house one night. And my mom just sat there and ate the whole thing. She was like, I can't believe how good this is. What's in it? And when I told her Indian spice, she about choked on the popcorn. She was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> oh, it's going to be spicy. And I'm like, no, ma, it's not spicy. He put in a quarter teaspoon. I mean, hardly anything, but it's enough to just give you this depth of flavor that was really, really good and really interesting. I'm glad that you tell that story because that actually leads into my next question. Do you have any certain go-to ingredients or spices or whatever that you usually use when you and Corianne cook to liven up a meal? Yeah, salt and pepper. That's it? Nice and simple? <laughs> no, I'm telling you, man, salt and pepper. Just give give whatever you're cooking a little bit of help. Do you make pasta ever? Yeah. Do you put seasoning into the pasta water? Mm, just just the salt when we boil it, uh, when we boil the water. How come? Nothing else? Nope. No, never. I don't know. <laughs> any, any reason why not? My wife will put spices when she's creating the sauce. Sure, sure. But, but not the pasta. Yeah, not the pasta, no. So here's my point. Pasta expands two, three times when you cook it. It's absorbing all of that water. If the water has a flavor to it, it will imbue that into the pasta, right? Okay. Why not give your pasta as much help as you possibly can? At, throw salt and pepper in there. Throw some onion powder in there. Throw a couple of garlic cloves in there. It's not going to hurt anything. It's only going to add to the flavor of your pasta that you're then going to put a sauce over. Flavoring your pasta can really cover a lot of problems you have with your sauce, believe it or not. If your sauce is like, yeah, it's quite, it's there. It's like, you know, 80%, 85% of the way of what I want it to be. So I'll just call that good. If you've seasoned your pasta water and that pasta has a little bit of that flavor to it, that might be that 15% you need just to put it right where you want it to be. Wow, I like that. A nice, easy solution. Mm -hmm. Do you use any, uh, we'll just call them kitchen gadgets when you're making meals, or you just kind of oh keep it goodness. simple? I am a kitchen gadget fanatic, bro. Really? <laughs> you don't even know. Like, <laughs> I've got a KitchenAid, a Cuisinart, an Instapot. As a matter of fact, I've got a couple different sizes of food processor. I've got all the attachments for my KitchenAid. And I know that I shouldn't, like Alton Brown has this thing where he talks about single-use single, single use tools. You don't ever buy those because you're not going to use them. Like if, if somebody comes out with a new potato masher, but your old potato masher works just fine, why buy the new one? Well, because the new one's better and I can throw away my old one. Like I just, I like new fresh kitchen gadgets. I love new kitchen gadgets. I've got, I don't know, four or five different wine bottle openers. I mean, it just... Which one am I using? It depends on my day. I, you know, I've got stuff that follows a different mood. I just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of different kitchen gadgets. I think I've started to slow that down a little bit. But, you know, one of the things that we always tend to use a lot in the summertime is, you know what a food saver is, right? A vacuum sealer? Yes. So we have jar attachments. It's a hose that comes out of the hose adapter for the saver. And then there's a jar attachment for it. And what you do is you take your, your mason jar, you put one of the lids on, no ring, just the lid by itself. And then you put this sealer over the top. It'll vacuum seal that jar and it'll, it'll hold that lid in place, right? It's one of my favorite 
utensils. I, I don't pull it out as often as I probably should. But let me tell you something, being able to put something under vacuum, it's going to change the way you cook. Let's say that you want something pickled and you don't have it ready. You don't have the pickles there or you want pickled carrots or something like that, right? You can literally just boil your pickling solution, pour it over the veggies into that mason jar and then put that thing under vacuum. Because what pickling is, is you've got a solution on one side of the cells and you've got water on the inside of the cell. And so through osmosis, you, you pickle whatever veggie you have in there, right? Because eventually the water that's in the veg and the saline solution that's in the pickling uh, water or pickling juice, excuse me, it, it eventually has that crossover through the cell walls, right? What you're doing when you put it under vacuum is you're actually breaking those cell walls. You're not exactly pickling it. I understand that. You're kind of cheating. But when you break the cell walls, you have an instant transfer of that liquid. So what you end up with is something that's eh, maybe not quite a pickle, but pretty darn close and takes about a half an hour. A little bit of science here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We're very science-based. My day job is an engineering job. I'm setting up a manufacturing facility. And of course, my wife is a doctor. And so science makes its way into pretty much everything we, we do here. But I'll tell you, man, science is an important component to have when you're cooking. Going back to canning, canning is kind of a lost art. Like you need to know how to can food. If a person thinks, oh, I'll just, you know, throw it in a can and put it on the shelf, that ain't the way this works. If somebody thinks that they know how to can meat, but they're not using a pressure canner, they're guaranteed to, to get some kind of a bug. You know, like it just, there are certain ways that you have to do this stuff. And it kind of is a lost science, to be honest. And, and you guys get to experience that with uh, every little uh, new dish that you guys create. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we apply that that same thought process. Although I'm not the one that's pulling spices off the shelf, sniffing each one and then going, oh, no, not that one. Putting it back, grabbing a different one, taking the top off, smelling it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. That's how, that's how my wife figured out that she likes nutmeg in her fried cabbage. Why are you putting nutmeg in fried cabbage? But it really does. It brings a, an extra depth of flavor that's quite good. Uh, one of my favorite things to cook, actually, is fried pork chops and cabbage. I'll smoke the pork chops up to about 130 degrees, and then we'll finish them in a frying pan. Uh, just, just quick sear on either side, get them up to that 145, right? And then uh, I'll fry a, a head of cabbage in there. Had a cabbage, a couple onions, salt, pepper, onion, garlic, and then her pinch of nutmeg. And it is divine. I love it. It's one of my favorite dishes to cook and eat. Yeah, I'm not as adventurous with food. So I, I know I picking up on some of the things that you said, you know, you know, throw a little spice into some of the things that you make and mm-hmm. have a couple of gadgets. I guess like a good set of knives and a good set of pans and pots that you can depend on. Yeah, those are kind of the given, though. A uh, good set of pots and pans, good set of knives. I, I don't even, in a home kitchen, I don't even think you need a full set of knives. If you just have a good-sized chef's knife, carving knife, usually you can get away with that. Some some people might say you want a fillet knife, too. You could, but I don't know. It's up to you. I, unfortunately, have a whole bunch of knives. For the most part, it's because when one starts getting dull, I'll set it to the side and use a different one. And then I'll have like a full day where I sharpen all of my knives and then I have a a drawer full of super sharp knives and I end up cutting myself on. (laughs) (laughs) That's just the cycle we go through. I also, I don't like to get rid of things as silly as that sounds. I have these sentimental attachments to certain things. Like we've got a knife in our drawer that it needs to go, bro. Like it seriously needs to go. But... I got it at the Northwest Food Service show like 13 years ago before my wife and I were married. 
I won it in some kind of a raffle. And it's a good knife, but the handle's all worn out. It had one of those rubber handles that was really popular for restaurants there for a while, but the handle's all worn out now. The blade's still good, handle's all worn out. I really should just toss it because it's, seriously, the handle's all worn out. And I just know that this thing is going to fall apart in my hand at some point. But, uh, you know, I just, I hang on to it because I have this sentimental attachment to it. I don't know what's, what's wrong with me. Well, like you said, I, and I guess, especially with meals and stuff like that, they bring you back to a place in time. You know, there's that sensory imaging, I guess, whatever. I don't really know what the scientific word is. You know, there's always things that, that always take you back. You know, we, we probably remember the smells from our kitchens when we were kids, you know, when when you you know when your parents brought in maybe your favorite takeout meal or something like that, how it kind of wafted through the house. You know, right. t- times around the holidays too, that there's always those those certain smells that you that have to be there or it feels like like the holiday is missing something. And then you remember what it felt like to get a wooden spoon wrapped across your knuckles because you were dipping into a dish you shouldn't have been, right? <laughs> and being Italian, I know very much about the wooden spoon. <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents were old world from Ah. Switzerland. And oh, yeah, they did not spare the rod, not from the children, not from the grandchildren. You guys are so busy doing your podcast. Are there any other podcasts that you like to listen to? Actually, there are. One that I like is a close friend of mine. He does a show called Tales from the Podcast. It's uh, Tales from the Crypt. Every single episode, he reviews a Tales from the Crypt episode. And it doesn't sound like it'd be funny, but he does a great job with it. And it's a really fun show to be on. I've been on it four times now. Uh, probably by the time people hear this, it's going to be six times because we just have an absolute riot every time we do it. He's had the voice of the Crypt Keeper, John Kazir, on there. He's had a couple of uh, episode directors on. He's had a couple of the actors that were on, you know, just doing bit stuff. But still, hey, came on, had a good time. There was one guy that he really wanted to get on after I did an episode. Unfortunately, in the episode... I called the guy Eddie Murphy from Wish.com and I don't think he took to that very well. I don't think he's going to end up coming on the show. Yeah, but yeah, I think people should go and once they check my show out, obviously, you know, facebook.com slash pardon my fork, facebook.com slash boostboostbbq, of course, boostboostbbq.com and pardonmyfork.com and Instagram. I don't use Twitter. It's a cesspool. So just don't even look me up there. Once you're done with that, though, go and check out Tales from the Podcast. Great show. You've handled all of your shameless self-promotion already. You kind of beat me to the punch there, Andy. Yeah, because I know how it goes, Jim. I'm I'm down with this program, okay? I know you're trying to wrap it up. That's why I'm going to make this thing run longer. Because now you got to be on the phone with me longer. <laughs> all right, well... The podcast, like we said, be full when you listen to his show. (laughs) Andy Imhoff and his wife, Corey, and who unfortunately we didn't get the chance to speak to, but I'm sure she would be just as enjoyable as this gentleman has been. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, Jim. Hey there, Rebels. It's me, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. And thanks a lot for listening to my show. You know what I'm here to do? Help you with your holiday shopping. No, I'm not going to give you my credit card. I've got something better. It's called the Sherpa Shop. If you go to my website, sherpolution.com, on the About page, you will see a link that will take you to a shop that connects to over 100 websites. And you can buy all sorts of stuff online. It'll definitely make your holiday shopping so much easier. That's not enough? Okay, how about this? Check out my other podcast, 
the expert factory. There is an episode about using online shopping apps. They can save you money and maybe even make you a little money, believe it or not. So have a safe and happy holiday season. Viva the share pollution, everybody. Let's get back to the show. Be a rebel. Follow the show at Share Pollution on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And now it's time for Sherpa Suggestions. So if you're not hungry enough after checking out Pardon My Fork with Andy, here's a couple of other foodie podcasts for you to listen to. We have Home Cooking. I love some of the titles on these. Toasted Sister. <laughs> Inside Trader Joe's. House of Carbs, which I think is a favorite of Allison Sharp. Racist Sandwich. Uh, okay. Eater's Digest. I like that one, too. I'll Drink to That. Burnt Toast. And Spilled Milk. You know, I like that one, but it kind of made me cry a lot. So much thanks to Andy Imhoff of Pardon My Fork for spending a little time and chatting food things with me, the Sherpa. Thank you so much for coming. You know the season we're doing two days a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. So whatever day you're listening to this, just know that new episodes come out Wednesdays and Fridays for this season. I don't know what it's going to be for next season. We'll find out. But wherever you listen or whenever you listen... If you could, please leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher.com, or iHeartRadio, and tell people that you're really enjoying the show, and you get a nice variety, and so on and so forth. You can say nice things about the Sherpa if you like. You could say everything about this podcast, with the exception of the host, makes it such a wonderful podcast. I'm sure people will be curious, and they'll want to listen anyway, so yeah, that'll work. That'll work. So... I will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. And Mr. Bruce, there's some leftovers there and some pastries. Uh, you want to split a cannoli with me, sir? And we'll let somebody else get the door, okay? See you next time, folks. Viva la Sherpa Pollution. Thanks for listening to Too Many Podcasts. Please disperse. You can go home now. I said you can go home now. Viva la Chapalition. Viva la Chapalition. <coughs> oh. Yeah, I'll come back now, you hear? <laughs>